We'll start in John chapter 10 with verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Now he starts off with amen, amen. Truly, truly, it's translated, or verily, verily, I say to you, this is a fact, this is a fact. However, what he's saying to them is a little bit purposely confusing. Now he's already irritated them. They, they want to kill him, but they haven't been able to do that yet. It's not time. But they're very, very irritated with him overall. And there's a mixed crowd that he's speaking to right now, because some are listening and believing. But what he's saying is hard to hear because it's not really designed for them to fully understand. It's more designed for the future to understand what he was talking about. We'll move on to verse 4. He, gets, he goes further. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And that's on purpose. And sometimes that's the way it works with us. We read something that Jesus said, and we think, wow, that's a little bit over my head. I'm not sure I'm getting that. He's going to take this even further than he's already taking it, and, he's, and it gets even a little bit more complicated. But Chuck Swindoll explained it like this. When he was in his basic training, and he had to learn to listen to the voice of the one commanding his group, there were several other voices they could have chosen to listen to. But if their group didn't listen to their commander, they would not have been in step. They would have been in step with somebody else. And that's the same thing with listening to the voice of your shepherd need to pay attention to his voice, listen and follow. That's the main thing we need to get out of what he's saying right now. Part of the reason he's doing this is because there are skeptics that are nearby. They've been critical of him already multiple times, saying that he's demon-possessed, who should listen to him? And he's telling them, you need to listen to the one true shepherd. So he, he takes it a, lips, a step further. You'll see in the next verse, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The part we tend to focus on. Oh, I skipped a whole section. Let's read that. So starting with verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, which is cool, the amen, amen, this is a fact. I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. If you want to know why I jumped ahead like that, it's because I have these cheat notes. It looks like I'm just reading right out of my Bible. I got cheat notes in here. And uh, so I do that and I got ahead because I'm actually quite excited to, to talk about a part that's coming it's a part that has to do with that great trilemma. It's that second part of the message. And it really nails down what Jesus does. So he's starting to talk about this, like the people that are coming before me, and he's specifically and explicitly talking about those that have been leading them so far, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day. They have been misleading, actually, and he's subtly saying this to them, and now he's hammering away, saying, hey, these, these are not people you should be following. I'm the one you should be following. 
because I will take care of you. With me, you'll be saved. With them, you'll be lost. You understand the purpose of a shepherd is to make sure that the sheep are okay. They, they tend to follow each other and they tend to wander around. Well, we tend to do that. And we tend to get ourselves into trouble. We do our own thing, our own way. We see something that's curious to us and we go there and it might not be healthy. It could be something like an, a predator that's actually going to harm us. And we think we're doing a good thing by following. And sometimes we just get ourselves in all kinds of trouble and he's making it clear we need to follow the good shepherd that's actually looking out for us. So now verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now previously he's already said to the religious leaders, your father is the devil. He's told them that. And he's saying his father is God the father, the one they claim to be following. He's now also calling them thieves, and he's also calling them killers. They already know they're trying to kill him. So what he's doing is presenting a very outstanding polemic. Although they don't get all of it, they're understanding, while wow, he's really stacking an argument against these. They've exposed themselves. They want to kill him. They've made that clear. He, they tried to deny it, so they're liars. He's said that they are the father of, they follow the father of lies. That is their father. And so he's already proven that they're killers and that they are liars. And now he's saying that they are stealers and destroyers. He goes on, verse 11 and following. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. You understand that when a sheep goes into danger, when there is a wolf that's coming and the sheep's going to try to, or the, the wolf's going to try to kill one of the sheep and steal it and eat it, the shepherd has a responsibility that's hired to protect the flock. But if you lose one and save your life, you can still maybe take care of the flock, get them to the water, get them to the grass, and that sort of thing. Why, why risk your life for one sheep when you can save the whole flock? And Jesus says, he's the one who actually cares about each individual sheep. He will lay down his life, let the wolf come after him to protect every individual sheep. He's going to demonstrate this at the cross when he lays down his life for everyone. And that includes anyone. Any one individual. He said that he came to give life and that abundantly. That is good to pay attention to this because if we follow him, we get that abundant life. Because he sacrificed his so that we don't have to face torment for our sins. He continues, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. He keeps repeating this. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. It's one of those cool things that that you get to experience when you travel. Like Stephanie and I, you saw the abundance of photos that I posted on social media. We got to go into a, a service of other believers and hear the message of Jesus to people that we don't know and we're intermingling with them. There's all kinds of people all around the world that are listening to the voice of the shepherd. And there will be more that are coming, Jesus is saying. He's going to bring them in. 
He continues in verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Every now and then a debate will come up in a Sunday school class or in a Bible study or maybe in the, at the kitchen table. So did Jesus have power over death? Yes. Okay, so is he the one that raised himself from the dead or was it God that raised him from the dead? Well, this verse, this passage gives you the answer. He's the one that's been given the authority and the power to be able to give his life and to raise it. The, the key in understanding salvation from Jesus Christ is that He is the one that holds the keys to eternal life. He is the one that has the power to raise the dead. He is the one that has the ability to grant us eternity with Him. That's important to note that. The Father gave Him that. It continues... Verse 19, there was again a division among the, the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? A miracle that Benny had just witnessed. You understand when people start spreading lies, the more people say it, the more it sounds true. So remember, they said, you have a demon. Remember when they did that? They've done it a couple of times now. And they keep repeating this. And then other people, hey, did you, they say, did you hear the religious leaders? They said, he has a demon. And so that gets repeated and it gets repeated. It's not true. But if enough people keep repeating it, it sounds like it's true. Well, I heard it from so-and-so. Well, I heard it from so-and-so. It must be true. It's a lie. And they're just repeating the lie. Just because someone repeats a lie doesn't mean it's true. Just because a bunch of people repeat the lie doesn't mean it's true. And they're here they are struggling because they've heard a lie so many times they think it might be true. He has a demon. Or he's insane. And that's going to bring us to that great trilemma when we get to that part of this message. It continues with verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, that's fascinating. They, the religious leaders have been trying to kill him. They've been trying to get their hands on him. They, they sent people to arrest him, and they came back. Uh, no one's ever spoke like this. And yet Jesus goes back into the temple where all of these critics that want him killed are. He keeps going back. There he is in the temple again. Many people there want to kill him, but they're not going to succeed, not yet, because it's not time. Verse 25 and 26. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The words that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe because you are not among my sheep. Ouch! So the people that are still choosing not to believe him, he is saying, you're outside of my fold. The ones that I will protect, take care of, and I, all of those. You're not in my fold. You're not following. He's highlighting this problem. We'll continue John chapter 10, verse 27 and following. This slide will wrap up the text for last week's message. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
Now, you'll notice there is a red line that'll go across the bottom of this uh, slide behind me. That is indicating the end of last week's text we were going to cover, but we're covering it all this week. Just wanted you to see that break where I thought we should spend a little time on that, more time than we're spending today. So if you've got some questions after all this is done, it's natural, and I understand that because we've had to consolidate things. But I do want to answer this question, can you leave Jesus? The reason why I want to answer this question is because it's a hot topic. It's one that we've lost people that we love here at this church over this very subject. You've probably got some close friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, who believe that you cannot leave Jesus. Now this text says no one can snatch you out of his hand. So, and it's repeated twice. You can't, no one can snatch you out of Jesus' hand. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Can you leave Jesus is the question. So you'll see this slide come up behind me, and this is the uh, tulip. I don't know if you've heard of the five points of Calvinism. I know that there are some in the room that have, and uh, over time, if you don't see it repeated, you kind of forget it. I did put a skull and crossbones up there, not because I like a skull and crossbones. I, don't, I think it symbolizes evil. I put it up there because I believe that this doctrine is false doctrine. I wanted to be painfully clear to everyone that Calvinism is chock full of false doctrine. These are the five main points of Calvinism, and it's symbolized by the word tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. The subject matter we're dealing with today is perseverance of the saints. You'll see that highlighted up behind me with a red box around it. And it's otherwise said this way in our modern vernacular, once saved, always saved. Have you heard this? People say, once you're saved, you're always saved. Now, from the beginning, now, and I don't know if you know this, but John Calvin essentially took what Augustine believed and just kind of pumped it up with a little bit of steroids. <laughs> and in the Reformation, John Calvin was a reformer. I believe I'll see John Cal Calvin in heaven. I don't think he was a bad man. I just think this is false doctrine. And I understand why it came about, because the Catholic Church at the time was coming up with some real off-the-wall doctrines that were... It, it was just like the Pharisees in the New Testament times. They had all these rules and regulations and added things, and they had weird ways you could like pay money and buy people out of purgatory, their version of a holding place for hell. You could donate some money to the church, and if you donate a bunch, you can get somebody's soul and your family out of hell. This kind of thing is what upset Martin Luther, and we respect him for that. Same thing with John Calvin. We respect them for rising up and standing against this legalism that permeated the church of the day. But much like Luther, Calvin went too far. And it ought to tell you something, that if one saved, always saved, otherwise known as perseverance of the saints, is part of John Calvin's theology as expressed in this tulip thing I've got behind me, this, this uh, illustration. Now, that should tell you something. If this doctrine, once saved, always saved, perseverance of the saints, came from John Calvin, it didn't come from the Bible. It came from a man. It's part of Calvinism. And as you meet different brothers and sisters in the faith, and I hope you understand me, Clearly when I say this, I am not judging people who think this way as not Christian. They're just following a doctrine that's not biblical. But as you meet people that believe in Calvinism, you'll find people that are extremely dedicated to Calvinism. And when you share Scripture, I don't know what that was, but it got my attention. I don't know. Noise. Uh, if you meet people that are so 
dedicated to Calvinism that Scripture doesn't matter, that should also tell you something. That, that should tell you that somebody's got a dedication. It, I think it's a short in my cord, is what I think. You're hearing me fine, right? All right. I'll just try not to act charismatic and jump around. How's that? So, when you find these people, it should tell you something. They're dedicated to a man's teaching more than Scripture. That, that's a problem. And it's very hard to win them over because there is a, an emotional connection to their belief system. This emotional connection is, well, if you believe you can walk away from Jesus, what they think is, you, you believe you can just kind of fall out of grace. You just kind of wake up one day, you're totally sold out for Jesus. You wake, you wake up one day and, you're, and uh, you roll out of the wrong side of the bed and all of a sudden, you're going to hell. And they're, like, they're alarmed by that. And that, That's not what anyone is saying that I know of. But the question is, can you walk away or can you leave Jesus? Let me give you some scriptures because my opinion shouldn't really matter any more than John Calvin's or somebody who follows John Calvin's. So I've got a green line at the top. You'll see a green line at the bottom when we're done with this little rabbit trail on once saved, always saved. So we'll look at Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 24. I am pretty confident it's just the, the cord. I don't think you can do anything back there. And let us consider, oh, by the way, this is the NIV. I love the wording at the end of this chunk. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more <coughs> as you see the day approaching. Do you have another microphone? Is that what you have? Okay, we can try that. Let's take a pause for a second, and I will just add it to what my other microphones. Thank you. Now I will have three microphones on me. I'll turn it on. That's a good idea. Shut that one off. So it doesn't sound like I'm getting electrocuted every now and then and alarm you. All right. Two microphones side by side. I'm on now, so I think you can hear me echo. Echo. There you go. Good solution. Thanks, Jim and JC. So we'll go ahead and read this further. Verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning, what, what deliberate sin? Any deliberate sin. Any continual deliberate sin. Of course, it would apply to meeting together and, and encouraging each other if we're not doing that. But if we deliberately keep on sinning, now is he talking to Christians or non-Christians? Because he was telling people to keep on meeting together and encouraging one another. He's not talking to the Satanists, is he? No, he's talking to the Christians. The book of Hebrews is written to Christian Hebrews. And he's telling them, encourage one another, keep meeting together, because some have gotten in the habit of not doing that. And then he says to the Christians, if we, that would be the Christians, deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, we know better, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. You can become an enemy of God and burn in hell if you decide to purposely keep on sinning. Christians, that's a pretty powerful passage, wouldn't you say, that says you can walk away from God, you can leave Jesus. Let's look also at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 and following. For it is, and we're back to the English Standard Version, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. And I don't know if you remember, but in Hebrews chapter 2, see it says tasted, 
the heavenly gift here in this passage, these people who've tasted the heavenly gift. In Hebrews chapter 2, it talks about Jesus tasted death, which means he died. So those who have the heavenly gift, it talks about having the Holy Spirit. They know the word of God is good. These are believers. Once they have fallen away to be brought back to repentance again, because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God again. So you've got believers, if they fall away, they can't be brought back to repentance. And this is a a bothersome passage for those who want to cling to Calvinism because they say, oh, so there's a point in time where God will just cut you off. That's a a horrible thing. In fact, when I heard, there was a preacher by the name of Jeff Adams out of Kansas City. He's no longer there. He retired and is a preacher somewhere else now, but he was on television. He was like the one everybody listened to in Kansas City. And I knew he was getting to this passage, and I knew he was a Calvinist, so I wanted to hear what he said. So he read this passage, and when he read about falling away, he mentioned, he said, so this passage says you can fall away. You can't. And then he went on and just talked about the next passages. So his opinion was this part of the Bible is false. And that's the way they typically deal with it. They can't. And if you read this and you struggle with it, because it bothers some of us, we think, oh, no, am I falling away? Good for you if you think that way. Because this word, repent, means changing your mind. And if you're one who can consider the destiny of your own soul, how am I doing with God? then you're capable of repenting. You, you still are you're able to process in your mind, like, what do I need to do to get close to God? The person that is considered fallen away is one who can't do that. They can't change their mind. And you wouldn't know this, even you, about yourself. You think, well, I, I don't think I can change my mind because I, I don't know if I believe. You, you don't know that you can change your mind. God would know. So God would be the only one who would know who's considered utterly fallen away. We don't get to play the judge, remember? It's God. Let me give you some more passages. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 and following. You might remember this when we went through these books and these letters of Peter. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness and after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Now, isn't that interesting? For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Okay, so... If it's better for them to have never known the way of righteousness, which is only through Jesus Christ, than to have known it and walked away from it. Wait a minute. So if you never know about righteousness through Jesus, you don't know it. You know, in the Old Testament, when Adam and Eve knew each other, they were intimate. So if if you know it, you are intimately involved in the salvation through Jesus Christ, you know what that's all about, you're living it. It'd be better to never know it. What does that mean? That means it'd be better if they were outside of Christ and never inside of Christ. They never even knew it. They, weren't, they had no intimate relationship with Him. They, it'd be better to never be close to Jesus at all than to be close to Him and then walk away. Well, wait a minute. And Jesus says in John 14, He's the only way. So if you don't ever connect to Him, you're lost. Why are you better off lost than saved and then lost? Obviously, and, uh, the, the, might, the men will have the answer to this. They may not know it, but in their men's notebooks, there's a few pages of different levels of sin. I know, I know. Somebody once said, all sin is equal. Have you heard this? All sin is equal? That's a whole study that would take more than an hour. But in the men's notebooks, there's a few pages, lists of multiple passages that say otherwise. 
There is no verse in the Bible that says all sin is equal. That's an opinion. It's been repeated multiple times. And when you say a lie, often enough people begin to believe it. Didn't Jesus... Wait, wait, let me just ask you a couple of questions. Is there a sin that is considered unforgivable? Oh, so there's, that's a big bad one? And how can they all be equal? That's just one. Uh, I can ask you this question. Did Jesus ever say that man is guilty of a greater sin? Oh? We've just been lied to a lot. We've been told all sin is equal because we want to... Because we don't want to create a scenario where it's like, well, I just stole a little bit. I didn't kill anybody. You know, that's what we do. We want to say that there's justify ourselves because there's, that's a bit much worse, so I can do the little one. That's what we want to get away from. But does the Bible say all of sin is equal? No, it does not. In fact, in this passage, it says there's two lostness. There's a person who's lost because they never knew Jesus and a person that's lost because they knew him and walked away. And that person's worse than the person who never knew Jesus at all. So obviously there's levels of sin and levels of punishment. But this passage does say you can walk away from him. There's another passage I want to give you here from 1 Timothy. And it's right in the first chapter of 1 Timothy, starting with verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, My child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So here's two people named by Paul who have shipwrecked their faith. People like to say it like this. Well, it, it is once saved, always saved, because you know what? If, they're, if they say they're, they once were a believer and now they're not, they were never saved to begin with. That's what they do. They say, well, they were just never saved to begin with. Let me ask you this. How do you shipwreck if you're never on the ship? Or if there never was a ship? They shipwrecked their faith, which means they had a faith. And now it's crashed. This is in your Bible, my Bible. There's a few more passages I want to give you. These next two are right out of John. We just kind of fast forward a little bit. John chapter 15, one of my favorite passages in the Bible is John chapter 15. Jesus said, abide in me. Do you know what that means? Abide, stay, live. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Branches, stay connected to the vine. Abide in Him, lest you be burned in the fire. Uh, That's pretty in your face, don't you think? Let's look at another one in John chapter 17, starting with verse 6. I have, this is Jesus speaking, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. This is, by the way, the prayer. This is just before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 11, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, 
that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Well, that's talking about Judas. Very shortly, Judas is is about to lead people to Jesus to arrest him. In fact, he's probably doing it as Jesus is talking right then. But did you notice these? He says, you've given me them, and I've I've kept them, and I've guarded them, and I, I didn't lose any except one. So there was one that was in the fold, who's left the fold, and has lost. One saved, always saved. Well, what they would say about that is, well, Judas was never saved to begin with. That's not what Jesus said. I'll go with Jesus on this one. What do you think? Is that what you want to do? All right, so let's go ahead and talk about the great trilemma. I want to do this quickly. This is from C.S. Lewis, and if this looks blurry to you, it's because you have a vision problem, or the pastor used a slide that is not that clear. But the great trilemma by C.S. Lewis is like this. You see it up behind me. Jesus said, I am God. People like to say, no, he didn't. He never said he was God. He never claimed he was God. People of other faiths say this on a regular basis. I work with people of other faiths, and I hear it all the time. They constantly bring up, Jesus never said he was God. And I love it because I'm there, and if they turn to me and say, what do you think? Well, how about we just look at what Jesus actually said? We're going to do that in a minute. He said that he was God. Now, if it's true, that means he's the Lord. People like to deny it. You say, well, he was just a good man or he's just a prophet. Well, no, actually, there's no room for that. If he was insincere, that means he's a liar. He claimed he was God, but if he was not telling the truth, then he was a liar. And if he's sincere, he really thought he was God when he said it, then he was a lunatic. So he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. That is the great trilemma. That's all there is room for. He can't be just a good prophet or one of the good prophets or just a good man. People that like to say, oh, I believe in Jesus, but I don't think he was God. Well, then he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Make up your mind. It's one of the three. There's no room for another. I wanted to show you this in a little bit in advance because of what we're going to see in the text that follows. So we'll read on, starting with John chapter 10, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Remember, he's in the temple. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Okay, so not only did Jesus claim he was God, we have in our text right here, the reason why they were wanting to kill him in the temple at this moment in time in history is because they all understood him to be saying that he is God. It wasn't just Jesus that said in some quiet corner somewhere, hey, I'm God. No, He's in the temple proclaiming he's God, and the crowds have gathered. They want to kill him now. They're gathering stones. Why? Because they all understand him to be saying he is God. So so if anybody tells you Jesus never claimed he was God, have them read John. They can read the whole thing. It's all throughout John. But in our passage today, John chapter 10, verse 33 They wanted to kill him because he claimed he's God. The crowds understood this. Even though they didn't get the the figurative speeches he was giving, they understood his ultimate statement was that he is God, equal to God. We'll continue with verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law... I said, you are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. Now, I understand 
there is something that's said here that might bother some of you. It might bother you more if you watch the Trinity Broadcasting Network because you've got people like Kenneth Copeland and others on there when they love to bring up this passage and tell people, guess what? You're a god. Robert Tilton said it this way, your God's just running around on earth. They like to take this passage, that's a quote in the New Testament from the Old Testament, and I'll give you that in a minute, and they like to run with it. They don't like to read the whole passage, and Jesus is taking a passage, they're familiar with it, they love David, they know the Psalms. Jesus is quoting this because it's going to get them off step. You want to stone me, you want to stone me for saying something that the Bible actually says. And what he's doing is he's taking a very, a very isolated verse. In fact, he's only taking part of the verse. But they know it, and they know it enough to go, well, well, he's right. I mean, it does say that. But I don't want you to miss this before we move on to showing you that passage. He says, you are blaspheming. You, you want to get upset with me because you say I'm blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. So not only did verse 33 say that the crowds understood him to be saying he's claiming to be God and equal to God. You go to verse 36 and Jesus outright says it. You're upset with me because I said I'm God? He says it. So there it is. This, this is a good passage to show people. The crowds understood him to be claiming to be God and then he, boom, just outright said, why are you upset with me for claiming to be God? I said it. Now, let's go ahead and look at that passage in Psalm 82. I think that's the next slide. Is that right? Yep. Two verses in Psalm 82, but it's a complete thought, so we'll read them both. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High. All of you, talking about the people of God. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So if they read the whole chunk, they'd realize he is not saying that they are deity, but he is giving them He's including them, looping them in God's family. You're part of me. And that it is Elohim is the word. And then the word that Jesus uses in the Greek is definitely theos. So he's saying God. He's, some people like to argue, say, no, he was saying, I make you judges like God is to judge. No, because then Jesus' argument loses weight. You know, I'm, why are you upset with me for claiming I'm judge? He didn't say that. But he is telling people that when you're in the family, you're in my family. You're, I'm part of you and you're part of me. That's what this is talking about. It's not saying that you have deity and you can just go arbitrarily and do miracles. You can walk on water and you can raise people from the dead. He's not saying that you're like that, but he's saying you're part of me. So don't miss that. Don't get confused by it. Don't waste a lot of time losing sleep over it. Jesus was getting them off step. Don't you do that. Don't, don't get off step. He has points he's making. The main thing is, he is claiming he's God right in front of people who are upset with him, ready to stone him to death. He didn't back off and go, whoa, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean it. He goes, why are you upset with me? I said I'm God. We serve a very brave Lord. He's in the temple. He knows people want to kill him. They're grabbing stones and they're ready to kill him. And he says, what are you upset with me for? I said, I'm God. Whew, that's brave. I think it gives credibility to his statement that he is. I mean, who else would be that brave when they're picking up stones and they're ready to kill you and you say, why are you upset with me? I said, I'm God. And they, just so you know, fast forward, they don't kill him right now. That's powerful. It says something about his authority. It says something about his power. We'll read some more in our text. John chapter 10, verse 37 is where we pick up. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe in me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. <laughs> they changed their mind about stoning him. Now they just want to arrest him. So he's chilled them a little bit, but they're still angry. The problem is he is, 
He knows the crowd. Jesus is so good like that. If you ever take a class on giving a speech, you got to know the crowd. You can't use analogies that they don't understand. You, you can't give a speech that is irrelevant to the people you're talking to. And he knows the crowd. Some of them just said, he can't be a demon. Does a demon make a blind man see? So he knows the crowd's already arguing with each other. And, and so he says, hey, you know, if you don't believe me, believe what you've seen me do. So there's a bunch of the crowd saying, well, yeah, the evil person couldn't do those good things. So he escaped from their hands. And we'll wrap up our text, starting with verse 40 and finish with verse 42. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. Many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Notice the progression. So he goes to a familiar place where many people had talked about Jesus coming. He goes back there, and many people know where he is. Many people are believing. So you see, his power is once again exemplified in the fact that everybody knows where he is. People want him killed, and they're not doing anything. It's not time yet. Our Lord is a very powerful and timely Lord. I wish I had more time, but we've got two sermons that are crammed together. So I've got three takeaways, and I'll give these to you now from both that are smashed together. First of all, Jesus, you'll click that, we'll start. There you go. Jesus loves us, desires to stay close to us, and leads us. That's the good shepherd. The good shepherd wants to be close to us even if we put ourselves in danger. Even as we take crazy, stupid risks. He wants to stay close to us because He loves us and He leads us if we follow. You understand how that works, right? The Good Shepherd cannot lead us if we are unwilling to follow. He is not leading you if you're not following Him. Jesus is not your Lord if you're not serving Him. So, may I suggest to you, all of us, let's follow Him and stay close to Him. It's a safe place to be. may not always be comfortable, because sometimes He's going to lead us to, to, take, to take some risks and to go into challenges and to be uncomfortable, but let's follow Him and stay close to Him. It's a safe place to be. Second, No one can snatch us away from Jesus, but we can choose to walk away from Him. That's a big difference in Calvinism and biblical Christianity. Calvinism removes the ability for us to make our own life choices. No one can snatch us away from Jesus, but we can choose to walk away from Him. Why would we? So... I suggest let's choose to remain in Him. It's a fulfilling place to be. And the third thing, Jesus is God, has the power to raise the dead, and will be the judge of your soul. I don't know if you noticed, but it was kind of let's and us and all of that, and and there's a let's at the end of this, but That one is more personal, your. I had a preacher tell me one time when you preach, don't say you this and you that. Say we this and us that and that kind of thing. I think this merits saying it this way because maybe somebody here needs to hear this. Jesus is God, has the power to raise the dead and will be the judge of your soul. My soul, your soul. So maybe you should take it personally and challenge with that is let's make good life choices. Because unlike Calvinism, biblical Christianity is that we do get to make our own life choices. And in a given Sunday morning when we open up the Word of God and let His Word prevail, no matter what the preacher's opinion is or what some scholar of old's opinion is, it's inevitable that the Spirit could convict could move us 
And that Jesus could be reaching out and trying, as the Good Shepherd does, to pull us back into the fold or to pull us closer to Him. He could be prodding us with His staff or He could be hooking us with His staff and trying to help us along if we only will follow the Good Shepherd. And even if you feel like you have gone outside of the fold, Maybe you've gone way outside. Maybe you feel like you've stepped too far outside. Jesus is willing and does go way out of his way, leaving the 99 to go save the one. And maybe that's what he's trying to do this morning. If you need to make a decision this morning, the opportunity is before you. Dan might have some words about that, but let's pray. God, thank you so much for loving us the way you do, for making your, your word so practical and for making it so relevant. God, it seems like no matter where we read in your word, it seems like it's designed just for us. You've demonstrated how much you love us as people, but you also do that. You show us that you love us as individuals. And we feel it. God, thank you for rescuing us when we're heading into spiritual danger. Thank you for reaching out to us when we try to let go. Thank you for always having open arms ready to receive us, whether we're coming back or coming for the first time. And thank you for allowing us to be in a church where like-minded people could gather and open up your word and choose to believe and choose to follow. And if there are any here that need to rekindle their love, reciprocated back to you, may they do that even today. In Jesus' name, amen.